0: Thank you, Eric, for reading the word for us this morning and for Bruce and Doug and Missy and Chris and for leading us in, in worship as we come to, together to sing, If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Boy, that is, needs to be our, our sentiment, not only as we gather together, but every day of our lives. God has called us to be worshipers. He seeks those who will worship him in spirit and truth, who are to be worshipers before we are workers even. And certainly we are to be worshipers before we are worriers. <laughs> There's a lot to worry about these days, but we need to focus upon the Savior himself. That's our that's our mission, and that ought to be our mindset as well. So it's always a joy to be back here to Fellowship, I taught the Sunday School class earlier, and it's good to see so many familiar faces, good to be here as well. And uh, uh, David won out over Daniel, yeah, well, (laughs) I grew up with a twin brother named Daniel. Oh, these are the twins, I heard that all my growing up years, oh, these are the twins. When I was born in 1945 in Glenwood, Minnesota, the doctor said... Oh, I think we have another one here. And so my twin was born half an hour later. I was six and a half pounds, and he was eight and a half pounds. They didn't know they were having twins. (laughs) Doctor MacGyver, the Christian doctor, said, "Well, David and Daniel, those are good Bible names." So, so that's what we got. And then, and then my parents took us twins home to five other kids under nine. Dad was Swede, mom was Norwegian. What do you expect? Anyway, they, they would understand. Anyway, and then the last part, point about that, which I hadn't even intended to share, but, but um, and my dad didn't get married until he was 40. And so he had, at age 50, he had, he had seven kids under nine years old. That's my family, and good to be here. And, and Dan would have done a great job. Certainly, Dan Wilson, knowing him since 1970, when I came to Christ here and began to attend this church, the Wilson family, wonderful family. And and as we talk about thankfulness this morning, <clears throat> thankfulness, something for us to be doing every day, every day, all day long, all of our lives, were to be a thankful people. And I ran across a quote by Calvin Coolidge. Most of us weren't alive when he was president in 1923 to 29. They they called him Silent Cal. He was a quiet fellow evidently. Someone said that he could he could be silent in five different languages. <laughs> <laughs> there was a story that that at a presidential banquet, some young journalist, some lady got to sit next to him and she was excited about that and as they were eating, and she leaned over and she said, uh, uh, President Coolidge, she said, uh, I've, I've got a bet with my, with my friend, my girlfriend, that I can get more than two words out of you tonight. And, and he looked at her and said, you lose. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't get more than two words. <laughs> so, so Cal may have been silent. I believe he was a believer. We're going to spend eternity with him, but he may have been silent. But, but here's what he said giving a thanksgiving proclamation. We have been a most favored people, and we ought to be a most grateful people. We have been a most blessed people. We ought to be a most thankful people. End quote. And the question is, thankful to whom? Certainly not to ourselves, and certainly not to fate. We walk by faith, not by fate. Abraham Lincoln said we are to be thankful for the watchful providence of Almighty God. Yeah, in all of our thanksgivings, our primary duty and delight is to be ready and willing to give thanks to our great and gracious God. That's biblical. And three times in the book of 2 Corinthians, you can turn there to chapter two, 2 Corinthians, three times Paul will use this expression Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. And I wrote earlier in your outline, someone has said that 90% of a contented life is a thankful heart, but it is hard to be content and thankful when we are fooled into believing that we deserve better than what we experience or have. Our God is at work in all situations and in every circumstance each day as he has been all of our days like the Apostle Paul, we need to keep learning to say thanks be to God who always leads his people in triumph, even in our setbacks. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in Every place. Let's pause and pray for a moment. We come, our eternal God and gracious Heavenly Father, and and we are so amazed that we have an audience with you. We're so amazed that you take thought of us, that even as we're here, even as you're everywhere, you are here with us, and we're so grateful. Help us to continue to praise you and give you glory day by day. Give us ears to hear and hearts to respond even to your word, even this morning. Help us. Help us to be a thankful people, a gracious people, an authentic people who delight to put you on display every day. So have your way this hour because of Jesus, your Son, our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. We want to look at the background a few moments here before we look at this passage right here. You've heard me say, I'm sure, over the years that a text without a context can become a pretext. So we've got to be careful that we don't just jerk verses out of context and make them say what they're not necessarily saying. And so we need to realize again that Paul wrote this letter to the church of Corinth in about 55 A.D., A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. And he wrote the first letter earlier in the year from Ephesus while he was on his third missionary journey. And he founded the church here at Corinth on his second missionary journey about a year and a half earlier. <clears throat> and the great physician, the good physician Luke, records all that information in Acts chapter 18 and 19. And Paul wrote to to defend his God-given apostleship to the Gentiles because there were those who were vicious and pernicious Uh, false teachers and and false apostles that he was battling there. And uh, we get a hint there in chapter 2, in verse 17, for we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And of course, there were those who were accusing him of just being a shyster and a peddler of God's word. No letter of Paul's is more personal and intimate than this one. In this letter, Paul bears his soul, and and he describes life in in real terms and in raw realities. Nine times, he uses the word that is translated affliction, which means basically to press. Thus, it's a crushing pressure like grapes in a wine press. Sometimes the word is translated hard-pressed, and other times pressure or distress or hardship, And Paul certainly knew about affliction. Earlier in that chapter, in verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4, he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Paul just didn't live in isolation, and, and he was not cocooned from people and problems. He knew about people, problems, and he knew about problem people. Yeah, I think we all do, don't we? People problems and problem people. I think I'd rather have generally people problems than problem people. Yes, there are always some problem people who seem to always pick at everything, and no matter how much you change and how much you want to please them, you find out there's something else isn't right. Problem people. But he had them, and went, this is part of a fallen world. We know that. And so he faced very difficult things, as we do as well. In fact, his problems became so severe that, he, that, that they brought uh, despair. You go back to chapter 1, Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which come to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. I remember reading that. Uh, when I was first saved 50 years ago here up on campus, involved with Campus Crusade for Christ. And I had, of course, I had the Apostle Paul up on a pedestal and didn't realize he had feet of clay. He was a sinner just like I am. You are. But uh, I thought, wow, he despaired even of life? The Apostle Paul despaired even of life? And I would ask, have you been there? Have you despaired even of life? Are you there even today? Sometimes sometimes I think if we've never reached these kinds of experiences, of despair even of life, it's because we haven't lived long enough or we don't live deeply enough. Yeah, and we might ask, why did God allow such pain and despair in Paul and his friends' lives? Well, it's really pretty simple. Uh, because he wanted them to trust in him, rather than in themselves. And you'll see that in the next verse, verse 9. Indeed, we had this sentence of death within ourselves in order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Yeah, God does give us more than we can handle. I don't know where, who came up with that expression. I believe it's false. God will never give us, well, do you mind? (laughs) Hello. Hello. Mike is usually a friend of mine. Boy, I didn't mean to didn't be so mean to him. Anyway, uh, God does give us more than we can handle. I realize there's First Corinthians that says he will not, uh, no temptation will take in us, such as is common to man, talking about temptation there, he'll allow a way for escape. But this idea that God will never uh, give us more than we can handle. The reason I don't like that expression is because if we really believe it, then we look to ourselves to find out how to cope here. And we're not to look to ourselves. This is exactly what he says. That, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He allows some ponderous pressures for all of us in a fallen world. Yes, he does. and He's always at work, though. Always at work to conform us to the image of his son. And so even here, it's hard to, even kind of hard to read that even the apostle Paul, the spirit of life, in order that, they would not trust in themselves, but in God who raises the dead. This is a lifelong lesson for all of us, isn't it, huh? But the God of the Bible isn't sadistic, certainly. He doesn't allow affliction without purpose and without comfort. There, earlier in that chapter, chapter 1, we've read it many times. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. As I read through the Psalms, I find two themes that kind of emerge, not, ver- not uh, verbally uh, necessarily, but one is that life is hard. As you read through the, from the psalmist, life is hard. The other is that God is good, and that's true. Life in the fallen world is hard, but God is good. And if God permits suffering, he will also provide comfort. And if afflictions are severe, then his comfort will be correspondingly abundant. Look at verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in our abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So let's not lose track of that. And let's not lose heart. We certainly don't need to deny our, our afflictions and sufferings. Paul certainly didn't. But neither should we overlook God's purposes and God's comforts and God's mercies in everything that we face. Lamentations says that mercies are new every morning. And it's in that context that we read that statement. Great is thy faithfulness, as we sang earlier today. Every, do, every new day there's a new batch of mercies from our great and gracious God. And you need to remember this when disappointments and setbacks come. So as I read earlier in chapter 2, uh, Paul shares a disappointment, an anxious disappointment, a restless episode. In chapter 2, you are going to go back there to chapter 2 and verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when the door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit not finding titus my brother but taking my leave of them i went on to macedonia somehow somehow not finding titus kind of tipped paul over emotionally Uh, this experience was seen as probably minor to us today when we read it here but it was major for paul in reality people were important to paul and he wrote to remind us that even when life seems like a defeat, and life seems like a loss, that the Christian is always victorious in Christ. And the, the unsettling skirmishes and confusions can never undo the triumph of the Almighty because the next verse then says in verse 14, "...but thanks be to God, who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place." He didn't find Titus, and it was very unnerving for him, but still he said, but thanks be to God. No matter what we face, God always leads us in his triumph. His triumph is Christ's triumph on our behalf. That is his conquering of our sin problem, his triumph over the penalty for our sin. And the cultural context, again, in, in that, that setting is the, this picture the drama of a general coming back from a military campaign as a conqueror. And as he came back from from uh, conquering, there was a great parade for him and a grandiose celebration. And in fact, the, this, the uh, population in Corinth there, there was a sizable percentage who were slaves. And Corinth was a slave, a center of slave trade. And Paul, I believe, borrows this imagery and applies it to our victor Christ Jesus and our victory in him. So verse 15 says, And we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. And again, in the context here, when he talks about aroma, the pagan people used to burn incense to their imaginary pagan gods who were credited for this victory. And the key idea here is that the captives would be chained to the chariots as the general came back to, to to his to the to the city there. They would be chained to the to the chariots, and those in front were set free to serve. And those who were chained in the back were destined to perish and to be killed. And that's why he says for we are a fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Then verse sixteen, to the one in aroma from death to death, to the other and aroma from life to life. And Paul's point here was that the believer has been taken captive by Jesus to be set free from sin, to serve him now and forever. We've not been set free to please ourselves, not been set free to enjoy and just please get the pleasures of this world, but we're free, set free to, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And the believer is always triumphant in Christ, God is always leading us in his triumph in Christ. In spite of disappointments, in spite of setbacks, our sins are forgiven, we're bound for heaven, and the best is yet to come, no matter what. And this is how the Christian absorbs afflictions and trials and troubles and disappointments and and distresses and even disasters. We are still triumphant in Christ. And there in chapter 2, verse 16, he does ask, and who is adequate for these things? Yeah, really, who is adequate for these things? It's kind of a rhetorical question, but he answers answers himself. In chapter 3, verse 5, he says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Oh, I know we know that. I think we know that. But it's one thing to know it, it's another thing to really believe it and live it day by day. Our adequacy is from God. There's no bootstrap theology here, and there's no God-helps-those-who-help-themselves theology here. Our adequacy is in God, and he uses affliction to teach us not to trust in ourselves, but in him who even raises the dead. So we give thanks to God. We don't just congratulate ourselves for our perseverance and endurance through tough times. You see, giving thanks to God is an expression of our faith. It's an expression of our trust in him. Giving thanks to God reminds us that there's always a bigger picture. When nothing is happening, something's happening. Sometimes you think of God, are you there? Are you doing anything? Yes, yes. When nothing is happening, something is happening. God is at work despite our woes and difficulties and disappointments. He is always greater than our griefs, and he's always bigger than our beefs. And we need to understand that and rehearse that in our minds day by day. Giving thanks to him is not only a duty and a delight, but it is a doxology. Thanks be to God, he exclaims. John Trapp said this, Hearty thanks must be given to God, such as comes from the roof of the mouth, I'll read it again. Hearty thanks must be given to God, such as comes not from the roof of the mouth, but from the root of the heart. And then that great Greek scholar, Anonymous, we read about him quite a bit, you know. (laughs) Anonymous sounds Greek to me, anyway. It's Anonymous who says, Thanksgiving is the vibration of the soul's heartstrings under the soft touch of God's benevolence. End quote. So, so giving thanks to God acknowledges that he reigns supreme, that he works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians says, but not only works all things after the counsel of his will, but he works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And of course, his purpose is in the next verse. Romans eight twenty nine, where he conforms us, his desires to conform us to the image of Christ. And even as I rehearsed that verse, Romans eight twenty eight, this week, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him. And I had to ask myself, do I really love Him? If I really love Him, do I do I express that love toward Him in worship and obedience? And I ask you, do you really love him? Or is it just a word we say, a verse that we quote? "He works all things together for good to those who love him. We're to love him with all our heart, soul mind and strength. And yes, our neighbor is ourselves, but that's only an overflow from loving God and him, responding to us and, and giving us the resources that we need to love our neighbor as well. Giving thanks is not only a duty. it should be the delight of our hearts to give thanks to God for all things, especially for his mercy and his grace and his triumph over sin, death, and the grave. And like the Apostle Paul, we need to learn to say, thanks be to God who always leads his people in triumph, even in our setbacks, even in our confusions, and even in our disappointments. But secondly, we also need to learn to say, thanks be to God who lends his people to care for one another. Paul mentions Titus again. Titus must have been quite a friend to Paul. They must have had a very meaningful ministry together in the midst of severe opposition. So we're going over to chapter 7, still in Second Corinthians. Chapter 7, chapter 7, I'll read the flow of thought here. Second Corinthians 7, 2. Make room for us in your hearts. We wrong no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you, but I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my confidence in you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and fears within. But God who comforts the depressed Comforted us by the coming of Titus. There it is, the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Again, Paul expresses thanksgiving to God, not only for the reality and a sense of victory, but also for the sense of vulnerability. And he was able to appreciate uh, simple. <clears throat> Yet sacrificial service in the lives of other people, and they gave thanks to God for them. And so you go to chapter 8, jump ahead to verse 16. But thanks be to God, that's what he says. Thanks be to God. There's that expression. Thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. This is the second time Paul has written, Thanks be to God. Not, always, not, not only for always leading him in triumph in Christ, but also for lending a tender heart to Titus. Verse 16 of chapter 8 again. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. Even the great bard William Shakespeare said, O Lord that lends me life, lend me a heart replete with thankfulness. End quote. Yeah, chapter 8, verse 16. But thanks be to God for putting the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. Paul credits God for making Titus a tender heart. He credits God for making Titus a tender-hearted person. God put earnest concern for them in the heart of Titus. And then he goes on to describe him down in chapter 8, verse 23. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the church's glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. What a description of the church there in Corinth. As even though they face terrible, terrible things and, and ponderous pressures, they're, they're at work partnering to, with one another, and Titus evidently was one of the leaders, yeah. And I would ask us today, would this description of Titus, would this describe us? Would this describe you today? Would it describe me? Are we a tender-hearted, concerned-for-others kind of people in this knockdown, talkback talk-back world in which we live? We are to give thanks to God, For always leading us in his triumph in Christ, but also for lending us tender care for his people. God not only comforts us in our afflictions so that we might be comforted, but he also comforts us that we might be comforters, tender carers. Go back to chapter 1 again that I read earlier. There we find in verse 4, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the same comfort with we, which we ourselves are comforted by God. You know, we need to express God's comfort, experience God's comforts, and then express it to those around us. We need to be conduits of God's love, mercy, power, and grace. And again, do we, do we want to be comforters today as much as wanting to be comforted? It's not wrong to want to be comforted from God. Absolutely. We need to look to Him continually for comfort. It's not wrong to, to want to experience the comfort of, of others as God works through other people. But I'm afraid it can happen where we desire to be comforted, not so keen on being comforters. And if that's the truth, if that's where we are, if we somehow wrapped ourselves in a in a tight tight wad and only concerned about ourselves then we miss the point of that passage because he comforts us so that we may be able to comfort others as well. Experience is comfort. Express is comfort. And if we're not vigilant, we can buy into the self-absorbed living of self-esteem instead of self-discipline, self-denial, self-sacrifice, of which the Bible teaches. So like the Apostle Paul, we need to learn to say, thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph, even in our setbacks. And thanks be to God who always lends his people tender care for one another. And then finally, we need to learn to say thanks be to God who lavishes his people with the most exquisite gift, his only begotten Son. I'm going to read chapter 9, chapter 9, starting with verse 12, 2 Corinthians nine twelve. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. And then that doxology again, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He has been instructing these believers about giving. And, and uh, Paul had a concern for Titus, and Paul had a concern for the Macedonians, and Paul had a concern for the Corinthians, and Paul had a concern for the saints in Jerusalem. And so we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we see the context of what he is saying here about giving, following through on the gift they said they were going to give. So we're looking at 1 Corinthians 16, 1, now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, I let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come, verse 3. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So that is what he is talking about there, about being generous to follow through in giving what they said that they would give. And then he ends by saying in verse 15, but thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He appeals again to the greatest gift from the greatest giver of all. And Paul doesn't say who this gift is or what this gift is. We have to interpret here. But it certainly seems clear that he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ himself as for John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he there it is, that he gave. God only not so loved the world, but God loved the world in this way. That's that's the meaning of the word so. God loved the world in this way. That he even gave his only begotten son. Begotten, not a word we use a lot these days, but the word is in the original language is monogenes, and it just means mono one genus. A genus, kind, one kind, one of a kind. Jesus, God, the son of, of course, we know that. He's one of a kind. And Paul, Paul has already mentioned Jesus in his context of giving back in chapter eight, verse nine. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And so what a contrast here. Christ Jesus is the unspeakable indescribable gift and it seems that words seem to to fail Paul when trying to describe the the magnitude and the sublimity of this gift and A.T. Robertson the great Greek, Greek scholar has said one of the Paul's gems flashed out after the somewhat tangled sentence of 10 through 14 there he says It it flashed out like a gleam of light that clears the air. And then he said, words fail, Paul, to describe the gift of Christ to and for us. In fact, he may have even coined this word, the only place you find this word in Scripture. And Paul either erupts into a doxology, or he pronounces a benediction here regarding the epitome of sacrificial giving. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, a gift too wonderful for words. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would ask again, are we, are we in awe of how great and how gracious our Savior is today? Are we a thanks be to God kind of people? A people quick to give thanks to our great and gracious God, especially when the world comes down around our ears and things go upside down for us? And of course, giving thanks is not automatic. It's, it, it's a daily choice. Giving thanks to God is a daily choice we make. It is a matter of the will or it's a matter of the won't. We either will or we won't. We either do or we don't. And God always leads us in his triumph in Christ, even in our setbacks. And he always lends us tender care for one another. And God always lavishes us with the most exquisite and expensive gift of all, his only begotten son. What a privilege. What a privilege to be bought out of the marketplace of sin with such a high price, the blood of his own son. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And so I would ask, is, is he your savior today? Do you believe in him? Do you belong to him? Have you repented from your sin? especially from the sin of trying to, trying to earn your own way to heaven, trying to impress him with your own good works or good intentions. Well, the best of our good deeds and efforts will only land us in hell, dear friend. Yeah, only Jesus can wash away our sin, wash away our sins. Jesus died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, he might reconcile us to him. And so I leave you with one, one other use. Of Paul's phrase, Thanks be to God. The only other time he uses it is in the first epistle to these dear people. so you want to go back to first Corinthians chapter fifteen and of course many of you when you hear first Corinthians fifteen you you um, think of the the doctrine of the of the resurrection, the greatest exposition of the doctrine of the resurrection of the Lord jesus and 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 our own bodies one day as well. and so as he dis- as he describes the, the victory of, of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's in verse 57, then he says, "But thanks be to God." there's that expression again. But thanks be to God, 1557, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He always leads us in his triumph in Christ. So let's, let's not lose heart and then verse 50, 58 therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And as we've already mentioned, Dan Dan Wilson was scheduled to preach today and he was he called me on Wednesday and, and said that he'd come down with COVID and and of course he was a beloved interim pastor here before your pastor Michael came. And uh his dad, Jerry Wilson, was pastor here from 1963 to 1976, and Jerry and Millie were wonderful <coughs> mentors to, to Linda and, and me as we began to attend here in the early 70s. Jerry baptized me right back here, and he married Linda and me, and he was uh, he was on my ordination council and spoke at my ordination service. He spoke at the insulation service here in 1989 as, as well. And, uh, and they had, when they retired, they came back, he and Billy in the, in the '90s, when I was pastoring here. But I'm telling you this only because one day Jerry came up to my office there, and, and as I was pastoring, he was retired and, and uh, came to my office, and I, you, you can those of you who know Jerry, he came in that smile and sat down, and, and he said, "Well, David, my fourth son he's, the, he's got three sons. he always called me his fourth son. He said, just, "I just want to come and encourage you." Here, he said, and he had a card with him, this card, and he, and he said, I want to give this to you. He said, when I was pastoring Emmanuel Bible Church in the, in the mid-60s, late 60s, he said, he ran into a snag, and he was very discouraged, very discouraged, and, and he was down walking around the basement down here. It was unfinished then, and they're walking, praying, and asking the Lord for his direction and so on, and he said, as he was walking along, kind of lamenting and praying, he saw his, his card, and the floor sticking underneath the wall, and he picked he picked it up, and, and he read what we all all need to be reminded, and for Jerry, again that day, he remembered the intensity of the of the frustrations, and the wonderful promise of God's word, and he read and. He, Picked up the card and said, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. King James Version, of course. And he gave it, he said, I want you to have this. And again, I've never forgotten that, of course, and I still have the card that he gave to me. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, Psalm 115 says. He always leads his people in his triumph in Christ. And let's not lose track of that truth. And let's not lose heart. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you. And we praise you for your patience with us. Thank you for your care for us all the time. Teach us to be a thankful people. Giving thanks to you every day, every day, every day, all day long, all of our lives. Thank you that we can trust you that if you sent your own son to become one of us, And live a perfect life and die on our behalf and pay the price that we owed but could not pay. Father, we know we can trust you with everything in this life. Help us again to be worshipers and praisers and giving you thanks day by day. You are worthy always. And we come before you one more time and give you thanks because of Jesus. Amen.